Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Thursday, March 18th, 2010, and welcome to the Future of Education. Uh, tonight, special guest Mike Moe. I think Deborah can't make it. Is that right, Mike? I, I didn't hear the. I, I don't know if that's correct, but that's uh, that's uh, probably true. If that's what you heard. <laughs> yeah, for, I think from your assistant, he said that, she, that it's just going to be you tonight. But we're glad to have you. So, uh, future of education is. Yeah, we're glad. Future of Education is sponsored by my daytime employer, Illuminate. The program uh, that I work on is Learn Central. It's a free educational network that includes Illuminate baked in. Everything in there is free, so we hope you come and give us a look. Also, special thanks to C. Bloom and Associates for their book program. They sponsor me buying books for the interviews. Coming up on conversations.net and futureofeducation.com, Kathy Davidson next week on the future of thinking from Haystack. Uh, Education in the Digital World 2.0 starts. Uh, PBS show on Thursday, The Buddha. Bill Kist on March 24th, The Socially Network Classroom. David Hill, then Sir Ken Robinson, Jan Cheatham, Carl Blythe, Tony Wagner on the Global Achievement Gap, Scott Rosenberg on Say Everything. Larry Ferlazzo from the Sacramento area to talk about um, the programs that he runs for uh, second language, second, English as a Second Language Learners. Tim Magner on the proper role of government in education. That should be very interesting on April 22nd. Then more on open source software with Randy Orwin. And Jackie Gerstein is launching our Students 2.0 series on April 27th. That should be a lot of fun and hope you'll uh, consider joining us for one of those. If you've missed the show, the archives are up at uh, futureofeducation.com. Uh, last night, Bernie Trilling and Charles Fidel on 21st Century Schools. That was quite interesting. Uh, open source for school districts last week, Education Beyond Borders, Total Recall. If you missed the Total Recall interview, that is really fascinating. Two guys from Microsoft. Uh, Bernard Robin on digital storytelling, Susan Patrick, Henry Lewis Gates, Clay Shirky, Dan Pink, lots more that's all recorded and up there for you to listen to. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment, participative environment. so we hope that you will uh, use the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window to express your pleasure, that's clapping hand, smiley face, or confusion, or a thumbs down. These are ways for you to uh, communicate during the session. This is going to be pretty informal tonight, so if you would like to ask a question, please feel free to use the hand or the green up arrow. That button will indicate you'd like to take the microphone. And if you think you would like to take the mic, do go up to a Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is configured correctly. Might be fun for you to give a shout out in the chat as to where you're listening from. Uh, we just heard another ping. So uh, Michael, did you drop off the call? Are you back on? Yeah, I, I, I think it's better for you just to be on via cell phone. I think that's great too. Okay. So I, I got into Illuminate. I got, I got into the Illuminate piece. And then we'll, I just think it's better for me to be on the cell phone. So I'm just going to do it from the cell phone. I dropped off and I'm going back on. Not a problem. Sure. Okay, so uh, this is an interesting evening for us because you're really the first guest to approach uh, this subject, the future of education and education technology, from the commercial side. Now, to be fair, I work for Illuminate, and, and Peggy was laughing at my uh, calling that my data, daytime employer. You know, I have a really great. Uh, uh, appreciation for Illuminate as a commercial company and, and feel that it's a good fit for me and so I really appreciate them. Um, but I do recognize that I play a unique role in the market, uh, having both worked for Ning and now for Illuminate, that I'm both a, an advocate for educators and a representative of commercial company. Michael, would you tell us a little bit about your personal background, uh, what you and Deborah do, and um, so, sort of uh, where you th what things do you think we might talk about tonight that would be of interest to educators? Sure. Well, part of what I do um, is travel around the country, as you can tell by the background noise of being in the airport, which I apologize in advance for, trying to be in the quietest place there. But my background, really, for the last 20 years has been to um, look and try to identify companies that have true innovation and can have exceptional growth. We identified the for-profit education industry as an important area for investment opportunity back in the early 1990s. And you know, I think what we've seen, um, and, and really also from a research standpoint, um, 
you know, so what we were doing is is, is literally creating a a framework around what we thought the for-profit education industry was going to look like, who were the players, um, what were the opportunities. What's happened in the last, you know, 15, 16, 17 years is that we've been involved with raising capital for a number of these emerging companies, providing mergers and acquisitions, uh, services, done consulting, and bigger investor. Um, all across from K-12 through uh, higher ed and and also to to uh, um, corporate money. Much of what we've done, you know, I think for the last 10 years has involved where technology and specifically the internet is cross-secting this 3.8 trillion dollar industry uh, um, you know, from a global market stand, you know, global market size standpoint, and what disruption that has, has created for traditional providers what types of unique um, applications and how that changes the learning experience, how it creates different types of relationships and accountability. And so today, um, our, our, you know, Deborah Quazzo, who's been my partner for a dozen years, um, you know, we started a, a new investment firm, a new merchant bank called Next Advisors about a year ago to raise capital for education technology companies to provide advisory work for these companies, as well as to invest in them. And so, you know, one of the things is just as a, an aside, and not necessarily the the um, question you asked, but one of the things to me which is quite um, exciting, have been been around this industry for a long time. I've never seen the, the kind of innovation um, in this marketplace as we see today, and really models. That both from an economic standpoint, meaning from an investor, you know, investors' opportunity to participate in these companies, as well as from a learner experience standpoint, um, have the same type of um, potential that we see today. It's really, I think, the most exciting time that I've seen in this marketplace. So I think what's interesting about this for me is that there's a little bit of an inherent tension at EdTech conferences between what takes place on the exhibit floor and what takes place in the breakout rooms. It, it, it almost is um, a little bit like uh, swag versus passion. And there's, a, there's some distrust of the exhibit floor. So I'm curious as to whether or not you're seeing, well, what examples of success have you seen and how do they relate to being authentic? And does social media impact where we're going in that regard? Well, maybe start with the first, you know, the last part first. I think social media is, um, you know, extremely disruptive, and and they're going to be an incredibly important part of the future landscape for learning. Um, I one uh, one of the things I've been doing is working with Arizona State University just as a, an advisor on what they're doing with their online program and some of the technologies that they're trying to adopt and. I, what, what to me has been just um, fascinating is the, uh, the you know the the the, the takeoff um, of so, you know the, the communities and the, the collaborative learning and and all the different kind of media that get integrated into a, to a social media or social learning environment. Um, so I think that area is going to be explosive and a, a huge huge important piece of what we, you know we see um, down the road. I think. Another observation, as it relates to kind of, you know, what you see on the on the on the on the trade on the trade show floor, you know, versus what people are really focused on and what they're talking about, is there are um, a lot of, and maybe more than ever, interesting kind of products that aren't companies, and I think what you'll see happen is many of these products become part of a more comprehensive um, integrated solution. For you know, for institutions and for individuals. So, I, my question on the social media was probably not well phrased, um, but what I meant was, does I, maybe 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 it wasn't no, well. No, answered. it was well. It was well answered because I think what you're seeing very clearly is, you know, changes in how things get done because of social media. What I was curious about, I think you gave an example to me before in a conversation of 
companies that did a good job of being authentic and, and having teachers kind of push them up as companies. And does the transparency that's inherent in social media put educational companies under new scrutiny to be transparent and to actually be valuable to educators? Well, I think there's no question that the transparency and sort of the um, democratization and 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 you know you're either you know you're either taking hold and people are adopting you or you're not. You know, it creates you know it creates I think a very kind of pure and efficient way to see what's working and what's not. And so you can kind of pretend that you know what you're doing is engaging students, you can kind of pretend that, you know, well, it's not up to me to to drive, you know, to drive, you know, learning experience and results and so forth. But with social learning, with social media, clearly does, as you can see it just in the kind of the the, the, the uptake and the adoption of, of of the learning experience. And so, um, you know, the, what you, you see true network effects starting to be built in this community for the first time, I mean, you haven't really seen network effects happen in education like you've seen in other areas. And these network effects are created not through being pushed, but being pulled. So I'm looking for, in my notes, for you, you, or, uh, or, you or Deborah were specific about um, uh, uh, Renaissance learning and how you felt as though their manner, their sincerity, we're a really good example of how to how to be a big company in in a in a an arena that's l looking for purists. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, if you go back to Renaissance Learning, which was um, you know a company that that that's been around for a while now, I think their their success really rest on the fact that they were viewed by teachers as their friend. And, you know, it started for a teacher, for teachers, and it kind of was, you know, it was authentic. It wasn't created to, to kind of a slick way to sell product or to make a buck, but could you help a teacher more efficiently teach them how to, uh, you know, teach, you know teach, uh, teach reading and later math, and could you make it easier for the teacher to be effective in the classroom? You know, it was a very pure, very authentic proposition, and and again, as a result, you know, the, the the business itself was extremely successful. The company, you know, I mean, the company really took off and and created tremendous market value. But it wasn't, you know, the focus was on can you help teachers teach better? Can will, will kids learn better? And the more teachers that you help, and the more kids that you help, the more successful you are. That's you know, it's a that's a kind of a, uh, it seems like a pretty elementary, um, but, but nonetheless, it's, it's the most effective way to work in this market. So it's interesting that in the chat right now, Sal is saying, Renaissance Learning was not a company that was willing to work with small schools. Money was the bottom line. That's the tension that I often hear. And and so, are there other examples of companies where you feel they've negotiated this transition well to where people understand? Okay, the, the company needs to make money to to serve the the audience well, but they're also really passionately committed to education. Well, I mean, I don't know what what, what time period sales referring to. Because I think you know one of the real secrets to the Renaissance's success was you know one it was a relatively low price point. Their sales model didn't depend on um, you know the, the large outside sales force. It was pretty much an inside sales force that you know, was responding more to inquiry than it was pushing out. But that that model changed, um, and actually the company a little bit you know had had some different uh, management that came in. And you know, as they were trying to figure out how to grow the business and and become more valuable, and actually they lost their way, and and not necessarily as a surprise, the value of the business went down. And maybe what Sal's referring to, you know, is the time period that he's discussing, because you know they went from being kind of a teacher's friend and you know really kind of a democratic 
um, uh, offering to a, a traditional, you know, traditional you have the large outside sales force, you're, 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 but by definition you're going after the big fish because those are where the big tickets are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think what you're, I think is worth saying innovation. I mean, one of the things that's so critical about the internet is this democratization of both learning and access because the 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 the, the, the you know, electronic distribution digital distribution is going to radically change the model and who gets access to you know the, the learning product when you have this kind of you know if you look at the evolution of technology and from from physical to digital you know historically you had the physical product being distributed physically through a large physical sales force and then you go digital you know the digital product is sold through a large physical sales force or a store, but now as you go from digital to digital, you know those rules just completely change, and so companies don't need to create. In my view, and you still see, you, know, you still see companies do it because people tell you you have to, but you see some of the more innovative companies say, you know what, Amazon doesn't have a sales force, Google, I mean they do have a sales force, but I mean, you know from a traditional sense. You know, it's it's the the reach that the internet provides, and in the, the equality and the democratization of both learning and access. And I think when you combine that with the authentic focus on can you move the needle, can can kids learn better? You know, because I think increasingly that's it seems like such so obvious a a hurdle or such an obvious metric. But nonetheless, I mean, with 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 greater accountability, with greater transparency, with greater um, you know kind of consequences. I mean, the secret sauce is going to be, you know, are kids learning better? And can you distribute it efficiently, which, again, the net is a, is a beautiful um, platform to do that from. So a couple of years ago, I remember talking to an executive at a very large technology company. And she said, we just don't really see K-12 as being a big enough marketplace to spend a lot of time and effort. I don't know whether that's true or not, but does the uh, does the shift from learning to include lots of opportunities outside of formal institutions is that sort of tangibly growing the market? Well, for sure. I mean, when you look, certainly. By the way, I think we're talking about the United States. When you look outside the United States, you know, the discretionary income used by consumers in places like Korea and Singapore and India and China, you know, dwarfs what goes on in the United States, but in this global economy, increasingly, you know, parents and individuals understand that, you know, to you know, to participate and to succeed, you know, you need to have, you know, you need to have that, that knowledge and that competency. And so increasingly it, it just it only stands to reason that the that the uh, you know going outside the institutional market direct to the consumer is going to be a, 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 a growing and appealing market. And in fact, if you talk to you know, many of the leading venture capitalists, one of the things that they're betting on is that that consumer market um, expands substantially. And I don't think it's so much a function. I mean, when you say the K-12 market isn't big enough, it, you know, it's, it's obviously gigantic. You know, there's almost $700 billion spent on K-12 education in the United States alone. I think what frustrates businesses is that it's just such a you know it's such a um, unusual um, purchaser. I mean the the customer isn't necessarily reacting the way it does in other you know industries, and so it's you know it's a longer sales cycle. It's quirkier. It's there's more there's more things that you can't control, and I think that frustrates both you know people selling into that marketplace as well as investors investing in the marketplace. You know that all said, one of the beautiful things that I think is happening in this seven hundred billion dollar marketplace is the um, continued evolution of it having to operate not so much more like a business. And I know that offends people who say operate a business because there's a lot of bad businesses that don't operate very well, but operate more in alignment with who its customers are, which are parents and students, and and also the people that are that are that are. Uh, uh, measuring and allocating the dollars, which is the government. So I think the more that you that you align spending with performance, um, you know, the the more it becomes a, a 
a rational marketplace to sell into, and that becomes appealing because it's a large market. Just as long as you can kind of make a sense, you can kind of control what you know what what the outcomes are going to be. So I think the consumer market for sure is expanding and is attractive, and that's what a lot of smart people are betting on of happening more. But I actually think the traditional institutional market, which has frustrated people historically, is going to become better. So I'm going to go back to my inherent tension comment because as you're saying those words. Uh, rational marketplace, controlling outcome, becoming better. I can hear educators saying, no, this is actually worse. That the more that there is um, a business lens on teaching and learning, that although that seems more predictable and better for businesses, the educators are feeling like it's much worse for actual education. So how do you resolve that dilemma, or do you see it as a dilemma? Well, I mean, I guess it's natural, um, and there's always a tension between change and um, you know create you know qu you know creating more kind of business accountability because business and education combine you know it's sort of in, you know the, the traditional thought process is that kind of you know, it, it creates a, you know, a impurity, if you will, for the for for the education process, and 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 obviously, I mean, I think there's been a number of people that have tried to operate. And there's a lot of money spent in education, and so it attracts people that aren't necessarily, you know, helping teachers and helping kids and helping anybody other than trying to help themselves. Um, but that all said, um, you know, so there's a few realities, and I think many teachers understand these realities, and that is that. Um, there's one thing that we know for sure, which is our, our schools can do better and need to do better. And it's not, you know, you can point to the international comparisons and you can point to this and that and other thing. I mean, one reality is you just you, know, you got too many kids. Well, I was at Grad Nation two weeks ago where President Obama um, came out with Colin Powell and talked about the, you know, the, 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 the dropout crisis. I mean, the fact of the matter is in this knowledge economy you're in, I mean, you, 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 you start with you got to graduate from high school, and by the way, you better graduate from college. But and that's those are just kind of like you know, kind of you know, beginning elements. But it's, you know, there's just all there's way too many things that need to improve, and it's not being it's not being critical of educators. It's just sort of like you know, here are the facts, and the facts are that we got to keep on improving what we what we're doing. There's plenty of great schools. There's plenty of great you know, teachers, but but we just need to do a better job. As a, as a whole, and the way that you do that is create a more systematic program that people all know what the rules are, people know what the expectations are, they're measured, they're compensated. I think that's another, not, not to, you know, I think it's, I'm, now I'm kind of going off the reservation a little bit, but I think aligning teachers' compensation with their performance is a good thing for, for everybody. It's a good thing for teachers, and it's a good thing for, 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 for learners. So I knew this would happen, and I'm so glad you've come on because this, you're a sincere, authentic and devoted, and you're not following the conversations that we're having, so you don't know, but this is a chance to kind of bridge those conversations. So a couple of weeks ago, Dan Pink was on, and he talked about all of the evidence that shows that traditional performance measures for non-manual tasks actually produce a worse outcome. And I think a lot of educators would say that the very words you're using, systematic, uh, the kind of scaling and the programs that, that are taking place are actually really, really bad for education. So I'm hoping somebody in the chat will pick up this ball and, and, and draw this conversation along a little bit because I, I think there's a really good conversation to have here. And um, I'm just delighted that it's taking place. Um, I know you've talked about uh, other countries and other countries that are doing well. What for you are sort of the touchstone success stories in other countries where um, there have been educational technology companies that have really made a difference? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I wanted to compliment you on your, your guest. I mean, I think is, is, is definitely one of the great thinkers, um, you know, in the world, and I think it's 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 healthy whether you agree or don't agree with somebody's comment if they've got 
you know, original thought that is, is based on kind of research and experience that's, that's, that's useful to a debate to get to the right place. I think what we all agree on is that we want our schools to be the best schools they can be for the most kids. You know, I think education is a civil right. And I think it's, a, it's critical that we're always, whether they're, it's, you know, we're always going to be trying to improve them. So go to your specific question about examples of education technology companies that have been successful. And some of this is how you define success, to your, to your earlier point. I mean, there's, you know, in South Korea, there's a company called Megastudy. From a commercial standpoint, it's, it's been a very successful company. Um, it basically is taking the best teachers and using technology to give access to students from a tutoring standpoint. Effectively, the teacher becomes the rock star through technology. Candidly, I don't think it's it's as sophisticated as I think you're seeing some of the education technologies that we see bubbling up. But you know, you're, you're able to get access to the very you know best subject matter expert in an area that the, the students are paying a lot less than they would for an individual tutor, and they're and the, and the students are are happy with. And, and you know, evidenced by the growth and the success of the business with the the experience that they're they're achieving. If you look at New Oriental in China, which is an English language um, trainer, and it's actually fairly traditional. It's not an education technology company. It's really an education services company. But they've been very successful at teaching, you know, helping um, students learn English. And English is increasingly the global business language. I mean, it's effectively the currency that the businesses is, is conducted around the world, and the world is getting quite a bit smaller. I mean, you can you know you kind of go around the globe and you can point to different you know you can you can point to different companies that have been commercially successful. And I guess I'm not even making the claim. You know, again, when you go to the international comparisons and you see Singapore and Korea and, and so forth at the top of the list, or you look in India and you see how much discretionary income is being spent on supplementary education. I'm not making a, a, a comment that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It is what it is, but also just point out to the, in terms of one one metric that those students, you know, are you know test better, or show more uh, more uh, um, you know evident more competency in the key areas of of, of the, you know of the future, math and science. And so um, we, we just have to say, well, is there something we can do? To make this better for us, and can education technology play a, a meaningful role? In that? Okay, Mike, you're being a really good sport because um, I, I think you're being very thoughtful, and and, and uh, I'm really enjoying the conversation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push a little bit more. Do you know Yong Zhao? He wrote a book called Catching Up. Or, he wrote a book I called don't. Catching Up or Leading the Way. I interviewed him a couple of months ago, and he's an immigrant from China. Been here about ten years. And he he makes the claim in his book that if you look 40 years ago, that the tests showed similar inequalities, but that most of the great inventions of of the internet age have come out of the United States. And he, and so he asks the question: Do those tests actually accurately predict what what really takes place in terms of global leadership and, and innovation? And he tells the story of you know coming from China where everything was tested, and coming here where he began to recognize that that what the American system did so brilliantly was it gave multiple chances throughout the, the lifetime of the student, multiple second chances. Okay, so I, I don't want to go on, but I'll, I'll finish the story. So last night I interviewed um, Bernie Trilling and. Charles Fidel, who wrote the 21st Century Skills book. And they tell almost the identical story of a Chinese delegation that comes over and says, this is what we want to figure out, is how you're creative. So I think it's kind of intriguing. And, and tell me where I'm missing the, the boat, or, or where maybe there's some accuracy, that some of the uh, inherent sort of biases of the business world toward measurability and performance and the like want to draw education in that direction. And I feel like there's a fairly strong kind of grassroots movement among teachers facilitated by social media for them to be able to connect and work with each other who are arguing that that's exactly the wrong place to go. 
So that's not really a question, but does it raise any comments or ideas for you? Well, first of all, and again, please don't, you know, I'm, I'm not one suggesting that the United States should become more like Singapore or like China or like Korea or anywhere else. I mean, America is still the you know, home of innovation. I live two miles from the Stanford campus. I'm blown away every day by the new ideas that are being generated by you know, entrepreneurs and by innovators thinking about how to, make, how to solve problems and to make the world a better place. And there's no place like America where that happens. And maybe, maybe you know, for whatever reason, why you don't see that same kind of, um, you know, you don't, you, you don't see that same type of environment in other places, you know, that's something to, 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 to kind of pause and to study and understand. But that said, too, you know, you're looking at what I call the global Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley, when I moved to San Francisco 15 years ago, you know, basically you found 90% of the, the innovative companies in the world, I'm exaggerating, but, not, you know, a huge portion between San Francisco and San Jose. Today you're seeing it in Mumbai and Dubai and Shanghai and, you know, Boston, Austin and everywhere. And I think that's just an explosion of, uh, you know, this entrepreneurism and solving problems and this and, and, and really a really good, good thing. I don't believe, you know, sort of kind of fundamentals of looking at an education system and saying, okay, it's it just intuitively to me obvious that you, that you need, you know, you can't, you know, anybody that doesn't have kind of clear goals, clear accountability, clear expectations, clear anything, and it can't do things in a, in a way that's predictable and consistent, you're just going to have random results. I mean, there's just no other way to be able to do that. So anything that can be brought in, not to take away the art of teaching, not to take away the individualism, but to create, again, around that, a process is going to create a more consistency for more kids. And certainly technology, certainly technology can play a major role in helping, again, create process and through software, you know, take the best attributes of teaching and making it consistent. That's what software does, right? Social media, social learning, I think is a is a, just a, a brilliant way to spark um, more learning, better learning. You know, whether it's because you're helping others, you know, through sharing, or whether you're going to have greater access, or you know, I mean, there's all there's all sorts of things that social learning do potentially to dramatically improve the, the learning experience. Again, not to replace, not to replace you know, a traditional education, but to supplement, augment it, and make it better. So I'd like to uh, suggest a possible comparison, and maybe this will be helpful. So uh, part of what you've described, the, the accountability and the uh, performance-based measurements and kind of the rational marketplace, to me, in a lot of ways, remind me of a sort of large monopolistic company. And I would say there are those who would argue that the government right now is that company in the United States that's the sort of one large driving force. And what I think I see social media doing is very much like small entrepreneurial efforts. So it seems like maybe there are both tracks driving the, the conversation. One of which is uh, the need for sort of core basic guidelines and standardization. And the other is the need for fringe innovation and small scale uh, activity and personalization. Because uh, it seems like the uh, entrepreneurial model is much more in harmony with a lot of people's philosophies about teaching and learning, that it's not about seeing the lecture from the best history professor online, that it's about a, an engaged educator and a student connecting at a very one-to-one -one level uh, at, at a local level. So does it help to kind of see maybe the education as both being sort of large-scale economies and small-scale entrepreneurial, and, and that we just accept that there needs to be a good balance between the two? Yeah, I think that's well said and well, I mean, I think that's, you know, ultimately you want to get the best of both worlds, which is effectively there is a inherently local um, nature of, of, of learning. I mean, that, that, that the, the local aspect 
lifestyle is 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 a is a, is, a, is an important piece of how people learn. At the same time, what the opportunity of tapping into a global community in, t in terms of tapping into you know literally the best people at the you know with the the best subject matter expertise or the best at being able to explain a certain issue. You know, the looking at how technology. I saw fascinating technology yesterday that just is you know effectively adaptive. Which is just getting smarter and smarter with every click of the mouse, you know, in terms of what's going on with the learners on the network and with the teachers' input. And so, anyway, I mean, I think this this combination of local, global, what I call, you know, nano communities, micro communities, and macro communities. I mean, that's that's I think certainly what I what I see is 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 is, a, is, a, is an important part of the the future of education. So I'm going to move us on. Um, one of the most interesting sessions we've had this year was with uh, Jim G about gaming and what uh, education can learn from gaming. Are you seeing companies uh, really start to take advantage? Is that what you're referring to? Are they are they understanding the inherent capabilities that the gaming uh, companies have built, the learning capabilities the gaming companies have built into their games? Yeah, for sure. And um I mean I think it's it's been something that has been a conceptual interest for a long time, which means that you know, that one of the you know key things that get people to learn is that they need to be engaged. And if you can learn while you're effectively, you know, playing or you know, you're you're doing an activity that is fun, um, so you know, the likelihood of doing it more and getting to, to kind of master it and accelerates. Unfortunately, you know, the history of edu gaming, you know, has been, you know, disappointing, you know, on on different you know, multiple levels. Either something might have been, you know, done which was very entertaining but had very little educational value, or maybe had very good educational value but didn't have the level of you know, engage, you know, the, the engagement or um uh, uh you know funness, if that's a word. Um, to, to it, and I think what you're seeing, which is, is, is just an exploding area, is this um, combination of really, you know, high-powered technology, you know, the adaptive, you know, kind of on adaptive uh, technology like you see at, at technology companies like Amazon and Netflix on steroids. You know, combine that with true, you know, good, you know, great pedagogy combined with an engaging, interactive format. So there's companies like Rocket, there's companies like Dreambox Learning. I think the Newton, you know, Newton's vision is, you know, extraordinarily exciting and compelling in terms of what they're doing. And there's a bunch of examples of where this is really coming into, you know, coming into its era. Because I think the, the, the conceptual promise of it has been interesting for years. But now you're actually seeing companies. There's a bunch of things that have all kind of come together because it's not trivial how you make this happen. Um, but I think you're starting to see this happen, um, with, you know, with live examples where it's. Where it's I think the, the kind of the, the the vision, you know, is, is starting to meet, meet the reality. So if if we if we look at other areas in which there seem to be doors really opening, you know, gaming is one. Uh, clearly, social media is opening the door to real engagement in in very tangible, real-world activities. Are you seeing companies mobilize at all around opportunities for true apprenticeship or for actual partic participation in real-world activities? You know, um, I, th I think one of the, one of the Areas that has a lot of people's attention is the is the area of mentorship and and, and again, um, you know, being able to you know to 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 get that experience you know with real guidance, um, you know, in a in a in a systematic, scalable way, um, you know, is something that's been very elusive. And I think you are starting to see um, more of that happening. There's certainly a lot of interest in it. There's certainly um, a lot of Attention and, and 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 brain power that's being devoted to it. I can't tell you that I've seen something that's well. I've seen, I've seen a few things, but I can't tell you I've seen anything that you know where I'd love to see it because that's a very compelling area. It's a very you know it's a very big big opportunity, um, but I haven't seen any 
perfect examples of it. Some of the things I think to me are the most intriguing. Um, you know, just again thinking about different models and thinking about what can really be done to um, improve the quality, lower the cost, and increase access. You know, looking at you know platforms being built, you know, created, and you know, people talk about platforms, and and there's a number of quote platforms, but I think creating you know the iPhone for education, in other words, you know, a platform that many applications get built upon, to me is something that I'm looking for, and you're seeing some sort of like things kind of popping up that are interesting. I also believe, just as a fundamental view, that you know, you've got two key things, which are this. I, I believe that you know the you know, what I say is learning is free, but it's the credentials that are expensive. And I think seeing some models where you're going to be able to kind of I hate to use this and it might sound like I'm trivializing education. I'm not. I'm just trying to make a conceptual argument, kind of a freemium model, where when you look at the cost of education, it's so high. But what really in, in, in this knowledge economy where assessment becomes a currency, to me, in the fact that it's not a four-year degree or a K through 12 degree, it's an ongoing average, you know, the average person graduating from college in 13 careers. Um, that's going to be something where you're going to have to, you know, people can't, you know, aren't and won't shell out, you know, $25,000 every, every four years to, to update their degree. So I think some of these kind of freemium models and, some, and, and looking at platforms are two other areas I think are really, really intriguing and you're seeing interesting uh, models emerge. So I think this is really fun and productive. And part of what's coalescing for me in my mind is that you're working with companies who have large-scale economic interests and who have to look for uh, returns in appropriate ways. And um, it's almost as though those of us who are participating in these kind of grassroots conversations are more looking like the micro-lending model. You know, wanting to start small-scale things that potentially could then become larger and more valuable. So, uh, because I'm as I as I hear you talk about assessment, I I think about the students who are building their own websites and are creating their own online personas. That they are going to be much more in a position to accomplish what they want to accomplish than a traditional high school or even undergraduate degree will bring them. And I don't see, it's hard for me to imagine how a large company with large economic interests is going to easily help manage that. Well, I mean, you know, and, and again, I don't know that, I don't know that they need to. I think, you know, again, there's a lot of different areas of um, both opportunity and things that can be done. Obviously, um, you know, if you use the micro-lending analogy, you know, a lot of little things can add up to a very big thing over time, right? And and so I think a key part of any endeavor is that with, with you know, it might be, you know, it might be niche or, or relatively small or unattractive to a large enterprise because it can't move the needle and the, the amount of investment and time required, you know, doesn't, doesn't, uh, justify what the return would be, but that doesn't diminish the opportunity for a lot of kind of niche or smaller um, applications that, you know, that, that, that over a period of time, as I said, can have a profound impact in terms of the marketplace. And as it relates to what's the commercial opportunity for that, you know, I mean, it's called, it's, it's the good old fashioned get rich slow, so that, if that's the business model. And some of the better you know, more more uh, substantial businesses that have that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the phenomena of Google going from a, an idea to a multi-billion-dollar business is a relatively <laughs> unique phenomena. Um, you know, I think some of the most of the great businesses, if you want to kind of again create, you know, kind of kind of bridge the commercial opportunity, are built over many years, not over a few years, and certainly in education. You know, generally that's going to be for sure, the case. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see something that had, you could wave a wand and magically in, improve um, learner you know, learning outcome, you know, everywhere, and it was ubiquitous, and and, and the value behind that was a zillion dollars. But the but the reality is, I think most of these solutions that really work 
And I think that's the key thing, the double bottom line, where, you know, first and foremost, you know, your kids, you know, learners, you know, they need to be able to be able to measurable improvement, measurable outcomes for whatever the product or service is being delivered. So we're watching our uh, our business community get fairly significantly disrupted in lots of ways. Uh, who do you think is going to is going to face the hardest time in the educational marketplace? What is it? The publishing companies are they the ones who are really going to face trouble at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolutely zero question in my mind. I mean, by the way, I think there's I mean, there's going to be all sorts of changes to take place, but there's no question that the publishing model, you know, traditional publishing model is going to get disrupted, kind of going back to what I described earlier is that natural evolution from physical distribution through physical channels to ultimately digital distribution through digital channels. I mean, the marginal cost of distribution goes to zero or you know, effectively free, and how does that work with a, with a traditional publishing model that has uh, you know, very high margin, very high fixed cost built into it? Um, so that's going to be a huge change. I mean, there's a business called Chegg, which is a in, in, in some respects, um, doesn't seem like you know a, a completely revolutionary idea. They're they're renting textbooks, but you know effectively a Netflix for the textbook industry. But these guys have gone from nothing to over 100 million dollars of sales in a few years, and you know and I think what their vision is is you know, is very interesting. But it's just showing you know some of them. I mean, that's just like that's just like the beginning. Um, so I think the publishing industry, for sure, is is going to have um, you know dramatic changes to it. And they, you know, I don't think they're, I don't think that's you know, newsflash to them. I actually think in, the, in the, the the college model, I think the traditional private four-year college model um, that that depended on tuition and not an endowment um, is going to be you know if, if there were stocks. They would be the target of short sellers because I think it's just kind of even in the knowledge economy where the value of education increases, you know, those models are going to be challenged in terms of what what it costs students and what the other alternative options that are available are. So um, I, mean, I think there's going to be a number of changes. I think most of those though will be will be positive for the consumer, positive for the student, positive for the teacher, um, and maybe not so positive for the for the, for the established players. So I like your freemium concept, and I'm wondering if that applies to MIT, meaning MIT makes all of this content available for free, I think with the understanding, one, that it's a changed world, but also, two, that that makes it even more compelling when you want to get together with other colleagues and really study that you would go to MIT. Is, is, does that fit your model? Sure, and, and, and again, I think MIT, from you know being innovative and sort of a sort of an acknowledgement that the future world's open, you know, congratulations. I think the pieces to MIT that I think become you know, again could evolve, you know, need to evolve. I think you're going to see again models that, that could sort of acknowledge this, embrace open, open, and embrace free, and then figure out different ways to monetize it. Is that I still think it's you know, it's a it's a fairly unorganized um, it's a fairly unorganized experience. I mean, one of the brilliant things that iTunes did was they organized chaos, right? And I think there's an there's a business opportunity. We wanted to create this 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 network, if you will, where people have a huge hunger for the content, for the learning, for the experience, for the interaction with other people that are focused in the same areas that they are. But how you kind of make that efficient and org Organized in a way that that is useful, um, but I do think um, freemium, at least as a way to think about. <laughs> think, yeah, I, I just kind of use I, I use that kind of freemium model. I apply it to a lot of different things. I see to say, could freemium work here? How would freemium work? Because it's obviously something that in the digital world has been very, um, you know, it's 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 it's, um, it's real. And I think the network effects, which you also spoke to, the network effects that can you create from that model 
not only from an economic standpoint, but from a learner experience standpoint, become very, very compelling, very differentiated um, from others, you know, once you get that going. I wonder if there isn't a good parallel here. So, so EVD in the chat mentions open source, and I'm wondering if there isn't a good parallel here in the software arena, which is open source software has in certain places pretty much displaced some aspects of commercial software. You know, if you're going to run um, a web server, you're going to use Apache. Or, and if you don't, you're not going to pay as much because Apache exists. So I wonder if we're going to see that kind of mix where there are going to be things that we're used to people paying for that are now going to be provided by the community. And those who are in, in the commercial arena are going to have to look to places uh, where that's not the case. Uh, or, or to, or to generously supplement in a, in a, in a way that, that feels like a partnership with those free opportunities. Yeah, no, I think that's, I, I think that's a, a great way to look at it. You know, my view is that's what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, I don't know, up for debate. But I think for anybody not to at least consider that as a possible scenario and what are the implications and how is it, what are the opportunities and where are the threats and what does this mean, I think you have to. You know, whether, whether, I'm, whether I'm right with that idea or not, you know, we'll see. But to not at least think about it and consider what that means, I think would, is, you know, I mean, that's, I, I think that, that, that you have to. So Mike, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, were my questions one uh, easy or ten hard? Well, one of ten. Yeah, Were you expecting me to go in this direction? I'm not sure. I was expecting me to go in this direction, but I feel as though I put you on the spot, and I think you've responded very well. Um, I guess I didn't know what to expect. And I guess what um, happened is, you know, as opposed to giving kind of, you know, kind of routine answers, it, 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 you, you caused me to kind of think and to organize thoughts in a way. But I think the questions were, 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 were very good. I think they, you know, were, were a couple levels below, you know, a typical interview would go, which, which I appreciate and thought was fun. And um, so hopefully you and others that are, that are part of this you feel like it was um, was was, was uh, it, it really was okay. You can't see this, but I'm clapping for you uh, using the little clapping hand. Thanks for coming on tonight, Mike. Uh, tell Deborah we missed her. Thanks to those of you who came on uh, and participated. Uh, if you're listening to the recording, we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have here. Um, do uh, do consider coming to one of our upcoming sessions next week. Kathy Davidson um, and the Education for Digital World series. Uh, do uh, extend your appreciation to Charlene Bloom for providing the book fund for the series. Mike, thanks so much. We really appreciate it tonight. Oh, it's completely my pleasure. Thank Have you. Have a so great much. night. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Have a great evening.